1: Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains descriptions of gun violence that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. At around 8 p.m. on a chilly February night, the female inmates at West Virginia's Alderson Federal Prison Camp were readying themselves for bed. Guards wandered through the women's block for night count, checking that each inmate was accounted for. But as one guard walked by the cells of Sarah Jane Moore and Marlene Martino, he realized that they were empty. Sarah and Marlene were gone. Two dangerous inmates incarcerated for violent crimes were loose inside the prison. Panicked, the guard immediately sounded the prison's alarms, and the entire penitentiary went into lockdown. Prison authorities were desperate to find the two women, but it was too late. They were already gone. That evening before bed count, Sarah and Marlene had snuck through the prison and knocked out the lookout guard on duty. Then they quickly scaled the 12-foot fence surrounding the facility and took off into the night. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream female criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type female criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Last week, we covered Sarah Jane Moore, one of two women who have ever attempted the assassination of a U.S. president. We discussed Sarah's childhood and discovered how her involvement in San Francisco's radical scene culminated in a plan to assassinate President Gerald R. Ford. This week, we'll cover how Sarah's increasingly violent radical actions transformed the trajectory of her life forever. By 1975, 45-year-old Sarah Jane Moore was a woman on a mission. Months earlier, after exposing herself as a former FBI informant, she was abandoned by her friends in San Francisco's radical community. But Sarah simply doubled down by joining Tribal Thumb, an even more violent extremist group. As far as Sarah was concerned, it wasn't her fault that her fellow activists shunned her, but the government's. And what better way to get back at the feds and prove her allegiance to her new extremist community than by murdering the president? And so on the morning of September 22, 1975, Sarah drove to Palo Alto, where President Gerald Ford was speaking. She had a 38 caliber pistol in hand. While Sarah had found several reasons to resent the U.S. government, her decision to assassinate President Ford may not have been entirely her own. In fact, it's likely that it was a classic case of groupthink. Before we continue with Sarah's psychology, know that while I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, I have done a lot of research for this show. Groupthink is a psychological phenomenon that occurs when the principles of a body of people overrides the critical thinking skills of the individuals inside of it. Psychologist Irving L. Janis writes that one of the key characteristics of groupthink is sticking with group-ordained policies, such as conformity and harmony, even if it disturbs an individual's conscience. This is likely exactly what was going on inside the mind of Sarah Jane Moore. And though it may have appeared that she was resolved in her course of action, she was actually plagued by doubt. Sarah later explained that she hoped someone would stop her. She didn't want to go through with her plan. This suggests that at least in some way, Sarah's plan to assassinate President Ford stemmed from a need to fit in with the violent radicals of Tribal Thumb, not an actual desire to kill. But unfortunately for Sarah, no one ever did stop her on her fateful drive to see Ford. On the contrary, she arrived at his event undisturbed, her gun at the ready. Once at the St. Francis Hotel, Sarah easily blended into the crowd. The event was well attended, both by Ford supporters and by other radicals advocating for social change. And this worked to her advantage. Though there were policemen everywhere, they were too preoccupied with keeping both the crowds and the media in check to pay attention to a middle-aged white woman. Sarah simply flew under their radar. Camouflaged in the crowd, she found the door President Ford would use to exit the hotel, chose a spot nearby, and waited. Finally, around 3.30 p.m., one of Ford's aides opened the door to the St. Francis Hotel. The aide bore such a striking resemblance to President Ford that a smattering of people began to clap. Even Sarah was momentarily confused so much so that she pulled her gun halfway out of her purse before realizing that the man wasn't Ford at all. Heart pounding, she quickly shoved it back into her bag. 10 minutes later, President Ford finally appeared in the walkway. He paused for a moment, trying to decide whether or not he should cross the street to shake hands with the people on the opposite side of the road. And Sarah saw her chance. She lifted her revolver and pointed the weapon squarely at President Ford's forehead. Then, Sarah fired. The bullet ricocheted off the wall behind Ford, just narrowly missing the 38th President of the United States. In response, Ford instinctively dropped to the ground, but Sarah wasn't finished. She raised her gun to fire another shot, But before she could take it, an ex-marine in the crowd named Oliver Sipple knocked her hand away. This gave the Secret Service the opportunity to grab Ford and hustle him into his limo. Then officer Timothy Hetrick sprinted over to Sarah, pinned her arms to her side and demanded, give me the goddamned gun. And yet Sarah refused to let go. So Hedrick twisted her thumb back. The pain finally forced her to release her weapon. After she had been disarmed, the police and secret service swarmed around her, forcing her to the ground. They placed Sarah in handcuffs and brought her into the St. Francis Hotel. And with that, Sarah Jane Moore, an accountant and single mother, became one of the first women in American history to attempt a presidential assassination. After Ford had been safely ferried away in his presidential limo, the Secret Service led Sarah to a private room at the St. Francis Hotel. But Sarah wouldn't talk. She demanded a guarantee, a promise that her son, Frederick, would be safe, and refused to answer any questions until this was accomplished. The police conceded, placing Frederick in protective custody. Then, Assistant U.S. Attorney Lawrence Callahan demanded answers. But first he wanted Sarah to tell him everything she'd done that day. He wanted to know her every move. Sarah responded by giving a circuitous account of her actions. She rambled on about how she'd accidentally fired too high. Then she bragged, If I'd had my 44 with me, I would have caught him. And she wasn't lying. The FBI later found that the sight on Sarah's 38 caliber handgun was faulty. The flaw caused her to miss the president's head by only six inches. Sarah was right. If she had had her 44 caliber gun, President Ford would have likely been as good as dead. Once authorities concluded their questioning, the police arrived to take Sarah to the San Francisco County Jail. That evening, she was officially charged with attempting to assassinate a U.S. president. Despite the gravity of her crimes, Sarah was treated like any other suspected criminal and assigned a federal public defender. His name was James Hewitt. From their very first meeting, Hewitt knew Sarah wasn't going to cooperate. She refused to answer his questions about what she'd done in the hours prior to her assassination attempt. And try as he might, Hewitt couldn't convince Sarah to discuss her past, nor any of the potential motives behind her assassination attempt. Instead, she simply told him that her reasoning was complicated. Unable to extract any more information, the authorities put Sarah in jail for the night. The next morning, on September 23, 1975, U.S. Magistrate Owen Woodruff set Sarah's bail to what would amount to half a million dollars today. Officials discussed the possibility of a so-called mental factor in Sarah's case, but she refused to be labeled insane, even though an insanity plea would have opened up the possibility of a lighter sentence. Hewitt speculated that this was because Sarah wanted to go down in history as a crusader rather than someone suffering from mental illness, even if it meant more jail time. If his hypothesis was correct, it would suggest that Sarah was deeply concerned with how she was perceived. And as time went on, it seemed as though this was exactly the case. Against her attorney's advice, Sarah arranged for reporter Ellen Hume to interview her. Though this was most likely Sarah's attempt to control public perception, as with Hewitt, Sarah didn't reveal much. In the interview, the closest she came to disclosing a motive was vague at best. She told Ellen that she was experiencing the same frustrations and discontent with the government that many other Americans felt. Afterward, Sarah largely kept to herself in jail, remaining secretive and isolated. Then a few weeks later, 45-year-old Sarah got special permission to attend the custody trial of her son, Frederick. At the end of the proceedings, the judge ruled that Sarah's good friends, Charles and Gail Roberts, would take the boy in. And as Sarah hoped, the Roberts were adamant about protecting her son's privacy and providing him with a normal, anonymous life, a life that Sarah would never be able to provide. After her son's custody hearing, Sarah was transferred to the Federal Metropolitan Correctional Center in San Diego. She stayed there for 60 days and underwent extensive psychiatric evaluation. The purpose of these tests was to establish whether or not she was legally sane the moment she attempted to assassinate President Ford. These evaluations were led by Dr. Gustav Weiland for the defense and Dr. Jonas Rappaport for the prosecution. All the while, a team of other psychologists also studied Sarah. But she was far from cooperative. She adamantly refused to disclose any information about her early life. Perhaps because of her defiance, each of the psychiatrists came up with a different diagnosis for Sarah. They said she had everything from hysterical personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, to bipolar disorder. Although each diagnosis was distinct, broadly speaking, they all described many of the same behaviors – a pattern of attention seeking, an intense need for approval, episodes of mania and a lack of empathy. But despite their many disagreements, the team of mental health experts who evaluated Sarah all agreed on one thing. She was fit to stand trial. Coming up, Sarah chooses her plea and testifies in court.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some...
1: On September 22, 1975, after failing to shoot President Gerald Ford, 45-year-old Sarah Jane Moore became the first woman in American history to attempt a presidential assassination. But her glory didn't last long. Moore was immediately taken to jail, where she lost custody of her son. Then she was placed in a psychiatric facility, where she underwent an extensive evaluation to determine if she was mentally fit to stand trial. After two months, the decision was unanimous. Sarah Jane Moore was perfectly sane. On November 17, 1975, a mental competency hearing was held to make an official ruling. Each doctor who testified echoed the same sentiment. Dr. Jack Eardley explained that though Sarah had experienced moments of emotional turmoil and stress during her life, she was not insane. Meanwhile, Dr. Weiland also testified for the prosecution, claiming that Sarah was playing the part of a vanguard of a vast and implacable movement. He accused her of acting rather than genuinely believing in the revolutionary cause. Wyland believed that she knew exactly what she was doing when she attempted to assassinate the president. Thus, in accordance with the prevailing expert opinion, Sarah was officially deemed competent to stand trial. Shortly after the mental competency decision, Sarah was asked to submit her plea. Although her attempt to assassinate President Ford was caught on film and had multiple witnesses, she pleaded not guilty. This was all according to a carefully laid plan composed by Sarah's lawyer, James Hewitt. Though Sarah was found to be mentally competent to stand trial, Hewitt planned to argue that she was acting at a diminished capacity, meaning that even though she wasn't insane, Sarah's mental functions were impaired by more temporary factors, such as emotional distress. Hewitt hoped the plea would result in a lesser sentence for Sarah, without risking the possibility of a mental institution. However, Sarah had other plans she pushed back against Hewitt's diminished capacity argument, insisting that she was completely in her right mind when she committed the crime. The two fought over the decision again and again, but ultimately, Sarah had the final say. Days later, she told Hewitt that she was rescinding her not guilty plea. She'd made up her mind. She was pleading guilty. She then forced him to submit her request and schedule a hearing. Sarah wanted people to see her as a crusader, not as a crazy woman, but she also wanted to avoid what she called the media circus of going to trial. She knew that pleading guilty would allow her to skip the jury and be sentenced by a judge alone. However, in order to change her plea, Sarah needed to undergo yet another hearing, It was scheduled for December 12th, 1975. That day, Sarah testified in front of Judge Samuel Conti, telling him confidently, I knew what I was doing. I knew it was illegal. I had control of my actions and made a conscious and deliberate decision to act as I did. Then, after taking full responsibility for the crime, Sarah finished with a pro-revolutionary message encouraging fellow leftists to never stop fighting. It worked. After deliberating, Judge Conti was convinced that Sarah understood the gravity of her actions. And on December 15th, he officially allowed the accountant-turned-assassin to change her plea to guilty her pre-trial hearing was scheduled for the very next day. During the hearing, Judge Conti primarily wanted to determine whether or not Sarah acted alone. He suspected that she'd been influenced by tribal thumb. The group was well known for its extremist ideals and violent tactics, and it seemed far more likely that the single mother was working as their pawn. But when Conti asked Sarah whether she'd been influenced to shoot President Ford, she refused, simply telling him, I'm not going to answer that. Unable to get any further with Sarah, the court then questioned other members of Tribal Thumb. They got nowhere. While the other radicals implied that Sarah had been encouraged to carry out the assassination, none of them would name names. Their silence meant that the court couldn't identify anyone else involved in the shooting, and they were running out of time. The court was facing pressure from the government to close the case. It looked bad that the president had nearly been assassinated by a middle-aged woman, but it looked worse that they were taking so long to convict her. So in a bid to save face and to keep the process moving, Sarah's sentencing hearing was scheduled for January 16, 1976. She prepared for the hearing for weeks. In her cell, she wrote draft after draft, perfectly crafting the statement she would make in court. But when the day finally arrived, only a single person, an old friend from San Francisco, came to say goodbye. The absence of her fellow revolutionaries was notable. It showed that despite Sarah's extreme actions, they still didn't consider her one of their own. Regardless, Sarah continued flying the revolutionary flag. During the hearing, she spoke confidently, telling the judge, no, I'm not sorry I tried because at the time, it seemed a correct expression of my anger. Also, I believed that the assassination combined with public disclosures of the government's own activities could have triggered positive change. Then in closing, Sarah told the judge, I've come to understand that violence can sometimes be constructive. Her statement almost seemed to be an endorsement of her attempted assassination and demonstrated an almost complete lack of remorse. The judge was stunned. After a brief deliberation, he sentenced Sarah to life in prison. On January 17, 1976, 46-year-old Sarah began serving her life sentence at the Federal Correctional Institution at Terminal Island in San Pedro, California. The prison was largely comprised of male inmates with only 60 female prisoners. This gender imbalance posed two problems. First, in Sarah's cell block, the male inmates could see directly into the cells of female prisoners from the exercise yard. Secondly, women faced far more restrictions. For example, unlike their male counterparts, female prisoners weren't allowed to visit the library or the day room. Sarah staged a sit-in in protest, but nobody else came. Adding injury to insult, the prison punished her, throwing her into solitary confinement for eight weeks. Despite this seeming failure, upon her release, Sarah was stunned to find that her protest worked. The exercise yard had been rearranged so that men could no longer see into women's rooms. In addition, female inmates were given access to the library and day room. These results encouraged Sarah to continue her activism. Eventually, she even formed one of the first chapters of the National Organization for Women, or NOW, in a prison. Every other Friday, the group brought in speakers to talk to female prisoners about a variety of topics, including health and art. But Sarah wasn't done. She also brought attention to a very important case that occurred at Terminal Island. One day in the spring of 1977, several prisoners heard groans coming from the women's shower. When they went to investigate, they discovered a woman giving birth on the shower floor. The female prisoners, Sarah included, jumped into action, working all night to make sure the woman delivered the child safely. The next day, the prisoners learned that the pregnant woman had begged the guards to allow her to go to the hospital. But they refused, telling her that her labor hadn't advanced far enough to require a trip to the hospital. Outraged, Sarah called several journalists she knew to tell them about the case. Soon, a press conference was arranged to bring attention to the issue. It's unclear if any change was actually affected, but Sarah was proud of the role she played in publicizing the case. But aside from her few victories, Sarah was largely miserable in prison, and her incessant activism was only making it worse. Every time she tried to stir the pot, she was thrown into solitary confinement, And over the years, Sarah spent months in a jail cell completely alone. According to a study by Dr. Kenneth Lux and attorney Thomas Benjamin, the use of solitary confinement in U.S. prisons can have serious psychological ramifications for inmates. The punishment often requires that the prisoner be kept completely isolated in a room that is constantly lit. This persistent light makes it easy for prisoners to lose their sense of time, and the silence often leads to sensory deprivation, which can induce aggression and depressive episodes. Lastly, the lack of human contact can lead to mental deterioration. Needless to say, after being thrown into solitary confinement again and again, Sarah was desperate to leave prison. So, during her time in isolation, she began mulling over her decision to plead guilty. She recalled that had she faced trial, she may have only been sentenced for assault since the gunshot missed Ford's head. That charge carried a maximum sentence of 10 years, rather than the life imprisonment she'd received for the attempted assassination. Sarah had chosen, against all advice, to plead guilty— But now, staring down the barrel of potentially decades of isolation, she wasn't sure she'd made the right decision. She began brainstorming ways that she could change her plea and receive a trial. After days of thinking it over, Sarah decided she would argue that her lawyer, James Hewitt, hadn't represented her properly. She would claim that she hadn't fully understood the plea that she entered. It was a long shot, but it was her last chance at getting out. So Sarah got to work finding herself a new lawyer. Soon, 47-year-old Sarah found attorney Peggy Garrity Edwards, who agreed to take on her case pro bono. In an attempt to gain a retrial to reverse her guilty plea, Edwards filed a motion to vacate her sentence. A hearing was set for April 15, 1977. Once again, Judge Conti resided over the proceedings. At her hearing, Sarah claimed that she didn't trust her former attorney, James Hewitt. She also told Conti that she had never fully understood her guilty plea, and instead felt as though she was rushed to make a decision by the courts. But Judge Conti was having none of it. He brought up evidence from Sarah's assassination hearing, showing that she did, in fact, understand her plea and trusted her attorney. As further proof, he pulled up an interview with psychologist Dr. Eardley, where Sarah had said of her lawyer, Hewitt is delightful. No doubt in my mind that he is proceeding in what he genuinely feels are my best interests, both as a client and as a human being. And with that, Judge Conti denied Sarah's motion. Sarah would not take no for an answer. Instead, she pushed her case to the United States Court of Appeals. However, in 1979, they also denied her motion. After that, it finally began to dawn on Sarah that she would be in jail for the rest of her life. But just as she was about to give up hope, a move to a new prison lifted her spirits. In July of 1977, the federal incarceration system began sending women from across the country to a new high-security facility in West Virginia called Davis Hall. The location was a three-hour drive from Charleston, Sarah's hometown, where her mother, father, and children now lived. But Sarah wasn't prepared to see all of her family. When her 24-year-old daughter, Janet, attempted to visit her, Sarah told the guards that she didn't have a daughter. Janet was turned away. It's possible that Sarah did this because she felt guilty over abandoning Janet and her other children over 20 years before. And perhaps seeing her would have been too overwhelming. But regardless of her reasons, it was clear that the people Sarah really missed while she was at Alderson were her friends in California. And as time passed, she only grew lonelier, but soon she'd only make matters worse. Just as she'd done at Terminal Island, Sarah continued to protest penal policies at Davis Hall. And just like at Terminal Island, she was constantly placed in isolation. These severe punishments made Sarah feel like the prison staff was targeting her, and her fellow inmates weren't much better. Sarah also claimed that they often harassed and bullied her. Having been subjected to solitary confinement so many times, the punishment began having serious effects on Sarah. According to journalist Jerry Spieler, Sarah's letters delivered a constant refrain of loneliness and seclusion. She wrote that during her stay at Alderson, she was going through a very bad time. In February, 1979, After spending about a year and a half at Alderson, Sarah had reached her breaking point. Fearing a life in prison peppered with consistent stints in solitary, she decided to escape with a fellow female inmate named Marlene Martino. Marlene, like Sarah, was serving a life sentence for conspiracy to commit murder. Though the two women had that in common, it's unclear what else their relationship was based on. But despite these tenuous ties, the two were brought together by their intense mutual desire to leave Alderson. And soon they began planning an escape. After slipping out of their respective cells, Sarah and Marlene hit a guard over the head with a makeshift weapon, knocking him out cold. Then the two women scaled a 12-foot fence topped with barbed wire and hopped over. Once they were beyond the prison's boundaries, the two didn't stop to take in their new freedom. Instead, they took off running, escaping into the surrounding woods. Coming up, Sarah and Marlene adapt to their new life at large. Now back to the story. On February 5, 1979, 49-year-old Sarah Jane Moore was on the run. Fearing a long, lonely life in prison, Sarah and fellow inmate Marlene Martino scaled the fence at Alderson Women's Reformatory in West Virginia. By the time the guards sounded the alarms, Sarah and Marlene had vanished into the night. It was cold and damp in the dense woods surrounding the prison. Sarah, wearing nothing but a light dress, shivered as they made their way through the trees. A teenager driving past spotted the women and slowed down. Sensing an easy mark, they claimed that their car had stalled and asked the boy if he could drive them to a payphone in the nearby town of Lewisburg. The teenager was more than happy to help. Once they were dropped off in Lewisburg, the pair took a taxi to the next town. Sarah was full of hope and adrenaline. As they got further and further from the prison, she wondered if they had actually pulled it off, if she was actually free. That sense of relief was a familiar feeling despite the bizarre circumstances. Sarah had spent her whole life running from one thing to the next. The only difference was that this time, the stakes were much higher. Around midnight, Sarah and Marlene headed toward the Greenbrier Hotel for the night. They were just a short distance away when a police officer spotted them. It was too late for locals or tourists to be out and about, and he was sure these women were neither. Suspicious, he arrested them. Sarah was crushed. She had made it so close to freedom and yet was still so far away. All in all, the two had only managed a little under four hours on the outside. In April 1979, after her escape attempt, 49-year-old Sarah once again found herself in court. Because they were facing the same criminal charges, Marlene wasted no time in turning on Sarah in order to save her own skin. Marlene claimed that Sarah forced her to leave the prison against her will by holding a knife to her throat. Sarah denied these assertions, pointing out that Marlene had multiple escape attempts under her belt. However, though it's unlikely that Sarah threatened Marlene, her intentions weren't entirely forthright. According to a later interview, Sarah only planned to use Marlene for her prior experience escaping and her knowledge of the prison grounds. However, Sarah also disclosed that she planned on abandoning or killing Marlene once all danger of apprehension had passed. But regardless of these violent intentions, Sarah did assault a prison guard in the process of escaping. Sarah claimed she inflicted what she described as only minor injuries on the man. The prison's warden, on the other hand, had a different version of events. He said that Sarah very nearly killed him. It was the warden's word against a convicted criminal. And at the end of the trial, Sarah was found guilty of escape. The crime added two years and a $5,000 fine to her life sentence. Back in prison, Sarah continued on as usual. She committed small acts of revolt against the prison guards, calling them sick, petty, frightened half-creatures with distorted minds and mutilated consciences. As a result of her rebellion, she once again spent most of her time in solitary confinement. But in August 1979, Sarah once again had had enough. She submitted press releases to local news outlets announcing a hunger strike. According to Sarah, she would fast until her death to get out of solitary. Historically, hunger strikes have been an excellent way to unite low-status groups under a common goal. According to S. Alexander Haslam, a psychology professor at the University of Queensland, hunger strikes are a powerful statement of social identity, allowing the disenfranchised to promote the collective cause to the total exclusion of personal interests. In Sarah's case, however, it's difficult to tell whether her intentions were to remedy the abuses happening at Alderson or simply just to draw attention to herself. Her demonstrated penchant for courting the spotlight seemed to suggest the latter. Her hunger strike garnered a lot of public attention and lasted for three months. During this time, Sarah functioned well, surprisingly so. It's possible that this was because she didn't strictly adhere to the terms of her own protest, sneaking bits of food here and there. At one point, guards supposedly discovered soup and hot chocolate packets in Sarah's cell, suggesting that she wasn't nobly starving herself, after all. Perhaps this hypocrisy lessened public support, because by the time Sarah called off her strike, it's unclear whether anything was accomplished. And soon, for the first time, Sarah began climbing off her high horse. In the aftermath of her hunger strike, Sarah became more compliant with the prison guards. Due to her improving behavior, in December 1981, 51-year-old Sarah was sent back to the general population of a federal prison in Dublin, California. Sarah was ecstatic. She'd been desperate to go back to California. She'd felt like she was losing her friends by being so far away in West Virginia. Once she was back in the Bay Area, Sarah was prepared to start fresh. Since she was no longer able to physically walk away from the circumstances of her life at a whim, she instead adopted a brand new identity. Sarah began to claim that her father was Jewish. All of her siblings denied this, but Sarah didn't care. She soon began consistently attending the prison's Jewish Friday services, claiming that she was discovering her alleged heritage. Sarah might have converted to Judaism because she was searching for a new identity, even a new life's purpose. But there was also another possible explanation. Sarah was looking for a new way to, once again, assert herself at the front of a protest. Around the time Sarah began claiming long-lost Jewish heritage, the Jewish community at the Dublin prison were facing an important issue, namely the lack of a kosher kitchen. Jewish prisoners had been protesting for over a year to have a kosher food line installed. So when Sarah arrived at her new prison, it's no surprise then that she immediately found a way to assign herself as the head of the initiative. Several members of the prison's Jewish community resented Sarah's self-insertion into their plight. One Jewish inmate at Dublin said most of the people in the group didn't want to be associated with her. But despite their misgivings, the congregation, including Sarah, filed a formal motion with the Federal Bureau of Prisons requesting the kosher food line. From that point on, the group's weekly service times once dedicated to prayer, evolved into meetings with prison leadership. Finally, after months of negotiation, the prison agreed to build a kosher kitchen with Sarah as its head cook. Despite having few provable ties to Jewish traditions, Sarah reportedly embraced the job wholeheartedly she continued to work in the kitchen in some capacity for the entirety of her 25 years at the Dublin Penitentiary. Perhaps this small win is what finally allowed Sarah to feel at ease, as if she had a place and a purpose, as if she belonged somewhere. Whatever it was, as her time at the Dublin prison went on, she became less and less hostile. Instead of challenging the guards, Sarah turned to other pursuits, such as teaching fellow prisoners cross-stitching and sewing. Eventually, she even learned basic computer skills and began working for the prison's accounting department. And while she still had occasional run-ins with the guards, Sarah largely became compliant. The almost-assassin, was almost a model prisoner, and soon her attempt on Gerald Ford's life shrunk farther and farther into the past. On December 26, 2006, decades after Sarah's assassination attempt, President Gerald R. Ford died from cerebrovascular disease. A year later, a reporter asked Sarah how she felt about her crime in light of Ford's recent death. Sarah responded, I am very glad I did not succeed. I know now that I was wrong to try. Mere days after that interview, 77 year old Sarah was released from prison, becoming a free woman on New Year's Eve of 2007. Sarah was released due to a federal law which ruled parole was mandatory for prisoners who maintained a satisfactory disciplinary record for 30 years. Sarah met the qualifications, becoming the first person who attempted an assassination on a U.S. president to ever be freed from prison. After spending 32 years behind bars, Sarah finally had her life back. Despite her new freedom, Sarah was still subject to five years of mandatory supervised parole. However, in a 2015 interview with CNN, she told a reporter that she'd petitioned to be removed since she'd had a clean record for seven years. But without providing a reason, authorities refused to end her parole. Despite decades of compliance and model behavior, The rule breaker in Sarah couldn't be repressed forever. And in January 2019, she directly violated the terms of her parole by leaving the country. Sarah, of course, went to Israel. A month later, the FBI discovered that Sarah had made it outside U.S. borders and immediately set about apprehending her. When Sarah returned to JFK Airport, the feds were waiting for her. She was promptly arrested. The then 89-year-old was held at the Metropolitan Detention Center until she could meet with a parole board and face a judge. The outcome of these meetings and of her hearing is unclear, but Sarah is still alive today. However, she seems to be living for the first time in her life outside the glare of the spotlight. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. For more information on Sarah Jane Moore, amongst the many sources we used, we found Taking Aim at the President by Jerry Spieler, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Female Criminals, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream female criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type female criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Bailey Benningfield, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson.